Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, March 13th, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist at American Enterprise Institute, senior fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Christine's AEI colleague and author of our Washington commentary column, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. We are going to attempt to discuss <laughs> the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank. Bear with us, people. Or the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and the uh, and the secondary collapse of Signature Bank. Uh, bear with us because, um, yes, as Christine says, uh, this is a little like asking a, a seven-year-old who can barely read a map to direct you uh, down back roads to a post office box but we're going to try because that's what we're here to do we're breaking out the slide rules okay what we are not going to do is attempt to describe why the silicon valley bank failed and i'm going to explain why this plainly which is that i think unless you are in banking and understand the nuances of the timing and trading of certain types of things and uh, a, a lot of banking regulations, it's actually very hard to understand what happened in the three days leading up or even the six hours leading up to the bank's collapse, except that it had to sell off a lot of assets to cover uh, losses and the sales didn't go that well. And then then people started saying, get your money out of that bank and $42 billion worth of money was attempted to be was withdrawn in like a matter of a couple of hours and that was the end of it so why this happened you know what ha- what technically happened uh i don't think we're competent to discuss i think politically and we can we can make a stab and i guess the the issues that are going to come up now are will the response trigger a populist blowback to the fed the fdic our 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 poobahs in the uh, in the um washington financial system uh who uh apparently are going to try to make good on the losses or try to make people whole or a lot of people whole not the depositors not not the shareholders and once and then does this create a moral hazard in which other banks uh start cascading failing because whatever anyway matt Can i just say one thing <laughs> yes. one, one quick thing is that if you do want to get into some of the nitty-gritty explanatory stuff our friend david bonson has a great piece on national review this morning that does go into some of the details and was very helpful to some uh naive person like me who didn't understand all of them so it's very useful piece Look, I think the uh, big story here is the Federal Reserve. Uh, this, this bank collapse is now the second uh, collapse of a major financial institution whose cause, when you follow it all the way back to the source, is the increase in the uh, main rate by the Federal Reserve over the over past the la- year. Over the last year. Over the last year, right. Yeah. So the Silicon Valley economy of the last decade is really the outgrowth of ultra low interest rates that have been perpetuated by the Fed and for much of that time in an environment of very low inflation. But beginning in 2021, at the very end of 2021, after the inflation appeared, thanks to uh, Mr. Biden's revving up the engine of uh, fiscal stimulus, and there was monetary stimulus, and of course, Trump also provided fiscal stimulus uh, during the pandemic emergency. The Fed starts cranking up interest rates, and all of a sudden, institutions which were kind of created and grown in an environment where they didn't have to worry about interest rates are uh, being faced with the bills coming due. And so the first thing we saw last year was the collapse of the Footex crypto exchange and Sam Bankman-Fried. Now, Sam Bankman-Fried, I think there are major questions of fraud at work here, but his scheme, if that's what it was... Uh, was exposed by the rapid increase in interest rates. With here, Silicon Valley Bank, there's no fraud here. 
There was a very good long article in the Washington, uh, not in the Washington Post, uh, in the Financial Times over the weekend that went through it. And just to um, underscore the point of how hard it is to explain all this, there are four, four bylines on the article. But essentially in the FT, we, we find that, um, and I'll quote the article, searching for yield in an era of ultra low interest rates, Silicon Valley Bank ramped up investment in a $120 billion portfolio of highly rated government-backed securities, most of which, that's me, uh, in were in fixed-rate mortgage bonds carrying an average interest rate of just 1.6%. Um, the investments locked the cash away for more than a decade and exposed it to losses if interest rates rose quickly. Well, guess what? Interest rates rose quickly, and when all of a sudden people were asking about the state of SVB's finances, uh, it was exposed that they couldn't pay the depositors. So you had a classic bank run generated by the Federal Reserve's increase in the main federal funds rate. And my fear is this is only the beginning because so many companies and financial institutions were spawned and expanded in the era of low interest rates. And now all of that is coming I uh, do. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm sorry. Let's um, let's unpack this because low interest rates were, of course, the reason for the financial meltdown of 2008, which is to say, basically, uh, for two, for a generation now, for 20 years following 9/11, and but you could actually say following uh, the 1998 fiscal crisis. The policy in Washington has been to lend out money for free or to sell sell bonds for free and uh, and then to allow uh, people to use that free money to build and grow and all of that. And then the problem is that uh, people uh, believe the longer a period like that goes on, um, people find it hard to read the signs that say that the period is coming to an end. And this is human nature. And this is the problem with policies like this, which is to say, you could tell the people at Silicon Valley bank that the, the era of free money was over. Uh, everybody knew it was a year and a half ago that the fed was going to have to start raising interest rates and raise them significantly when it was going to start doing that and how, Quickly, it was going to do that was not clear, but there wasn't a, I, I'm a financial illiterate and I knew it was coming and everybody knew it was coming, but somehow they didn't really believe well, that it was going to happen because they had lived for 20 years in a radically different atmosphere and they did not start unwinding their dependence on, in, on the low interest rate free money era and that's the thing so you want to ask yourself i think christine is what what the moral hazard that is posed by things like this is that the human mind <clears throat> including people who do this for a living these transitions are too difficult people get used to the the things as they are status quo set in very hard very fast and this is why hedging started in the first place in the 1970s. We had an unstable political system and hedge funds grew up to provide people with great assets, the ability to protect their money on the downside. And it appears that this bank did not do anything like that at all. It had no protection for its deposits in counter investments that would kick in and provide some security when the bottom fell out of their other strategy. Well, and that's actually, uh, we should talk a bit about the failure of regulatory oversight that already exists, because this is clearly a failure of that regulatory oversight. Um, it's that's absolutely, you're absolutely right about SVB. They, they were, they did not have a balanced portfolio of assets and liabilities, as they say in the industry. And it was all heavily concentrated in Silicon Valley. I mean, you had a lot of crypto investment, you had a lot of startup investment. Um, these are the sorts of things that it, it's kind of, it's interesting to, to how the Silicon Valley dream curdles very quickly, but you add 
onto that, another factor of human behavior these days, which is how news travels on social media. So the human factor in all of these, if you've read, you know, the the madness of crowd stuff, you know, the, the sort of crowd theory of, of mob behavior and whatnot, there is a risk still for other, other banks, other financial institutions, given how human behavior tends to express itself in these moments of crisis, which is they make a literal run on the banks. People go and they demand their money. That's bad because that's a kind of panic that can, that can have a contagious effect across other institutions. So I obviously Biden's going to speak about this this morning. They they were talking about all this over the weekend, releasing statements. They are really trying to put a damper on that kind of panic, which is useful. But we really need to think about why the regulatory oversight that has existed post the financial crisis before didn't work in this case. Well, so the financial crisis regulation uh, coming out of the 2008 um, crisis and the Great Recession was aimed at uh, systemically important financial institutions, the main banks, the the huge banks and the big ones. And guess what? Those big banks have huge cushions of capital. So the Washington was looking at the main banks, the the big banks that had uh, been involved in the previous crisis, and as always, were fighting the last war. And so what they weren't doing is looking at the regional banks, a bank like the Silicon Valley Bank. So I agree, it's a huge miss of a regulation. But of course, the world being as it is, whenever regulation misses, what happens? People call for more regulation. Right. And well, we should talk a little bit about what the Biden administration in concert with the, uh, the Fed announced last night in order to prevent this panic, which is leading to the um, the resolution of uh, the Silicon Valley Bank from spreading. And whether it's going to prevent the panic from spreading is an open question as we meet here today. But essentially what uh, the Fed and the Treasury Department announced in concert last night is that they were going to create a new facility at the Federal Reserve in order to guarantee the deposits of everyone involved in the Silicon Valley Bank. Now, they're saying this isn't a bailout because the bank bailout of 2008 basically kept the companies alive, right? So the CEOs weren't affected. In fact, many of them got bonuses, which became controversial the following year. Um, The stockholders were kept whole. Um, That was the bank bailout of 2008. Here, they're just guaranteeing the deposits, much like the FDIC does. But up until uh, 12 hours ago, the FDIC only guaranteed the deposits up to $250,000. Yesterday, they said, uh, now we're guaranteeing all the deposits, <laughs> and we're but we're just doing it this once, and this introduces the concept of moral hazard, right. which is why you have the huge political outry, outcry from the populist right and from the Bernie Sanders left. And we ain't seen nothing yet, Abe, because well, let's face it, that outcry for once is probably justified. Not only that, yeah, because the roots of the problem are so difficult to explain and so devilish it makes the simplicity of the populist anger the best the best alternative right it's like right. when when there are things that are that are like i'm not really sure what's going on here i can i've read five articles on it and i'm not i don't i'm not clear with this terminology and that term i don't know what's going on but all i know is we're getting screwed okay so the moral hazard argument in 2008 actually got complicated because the what Matt described, which was making everybody whole, it was understood was a moral hazard. It's just that the hazard of letting things take their natural course was too great that we could have an entire systemic meltdown of the world economy that would lead to, you know, uh, the world, the entire world becoming... 10 to 30 percent poorer in a matter of days because of the a balloon, balloon in this case this is the 16th largest bank in the country and uh and it <clears throat> pursued policies or it pursued investment strategies uh that turned out to be foolish and maybe there are a couple of other banks that followed the same rules like signature bank which was shut down last night um but clearly, that's not the case with the entire 
Right, but it, it's still a bailout Bankers. of venture capital banks. Right. I mean, that's okay. where that's actually where right. the populist message is, is going to land. I think Abe's right. And, I mean, this was venture yeah. capital portfolios in this Silicon Valley bank, and it's getting a bailout. This is a bailout. Right. Let's not. No. We shouldn't pretend it's not. Here's the key. The key is that let's take one company. I, I mean, I know its name. I'm not going to mention it because I don't want to get the fact pattern wrong. And you know, like, but there's one company, and it's like a media tech company and it had 500 million dollars in deposits apparently at the with socks, Valley right? Bank. <laughs> you're like that you're like the character at curb your enthusiasm who was talking with larry and he's a psychiatrist and he goes look i'm not going to disclose the identities of any patients but i have one client he's a very famous director he made a movie about the stars and the yeah. force but i'm not going to tell you who yeah. he is anyway so 500 million dollars in deposits uh the F- FDIC and the F- and the Treasury Department are going to make them whole. Now granted like they just have their money in the bank. So you can understand why this is a this could be like an astounding calamity that could cause them to have to sell themselves for pennies on the dollar just to meet payroll, have someone take them over and then meet payroll. But if Washington bails out that company, that's like we're well, now it, in a new atmosphere. But I should make the distinction yeah. because when people think of the previous bailout, obviously it was the taxpayer money was going to bail out these banks. In this case, what they're claiming, what the Biden administration is saying is that the cost of whatever of this I'll call it a bailout, is not going to be borne by the taxpayers, going to be borne by the banks themselves through whatever, you know, fees or I I have no idea. It sounds kind of sketchy to me, but they're they're making it very clear they don't want this to be seen like previous bailout. Well, I love this too, because um, the populists respond that, well, sure, the banks have to pay the fee to the FDIC, but they're just uh, to cover the um, cost of guaranteeing the deposits, but they're just going to pass that cost on to uh, regular consumers, which is uh, exactly the same argument that advocates for uh, corporate tax reform always say about high corporate taxes, which is, you know, the corporate tax is levied on the business, but that just is caught passed on to the consumer. So you have figures like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders actually using the same logic that's made to yeah. advance low corporate taxes. I just wish they would expand it to, to that sector, but they, but they never do. Uh, I would just so, say that the traditional method has been, and I just, you know, I went to, of course, um, the, uh, the my New Testament here, Free to Choose by uh, Milton and Rose Friedman, to look about um, bank runs previously. And they point out here in, in the chapter on the anatomy of a crisis that, you know, typically the way that you deal with the bank run is to get another bank to buy up the business, right. which they were, which the government seemed to have been trying to do up until last night. And um, uh, and they still may try to find a, a purchaser for the for what remains. But this new policy, instead of basically increasing the FDIC, the FDIC insurance ceiling to, I mean, there's no limit. Because if you do have $250 million in this bank, now your deposits are guaranteed, um, introduces a new... Uh, I mean, a new variable, I think, into the financial system. I would say I am uh, a little bit less outraged than a lot of my friends this morning um, because I don't, I I know, you know, having gone through the the panic in 2008, these things take on uh, very irrational dimensions and you could very quickly spiral into a situation where everyone thinks, yes, there's systemic risk. I think it's, I think it's worse that, that what happened last night uh, indicates that we were told on Friday, this is not going to be a problem, right? A big bank will happily buy up Silicon Valley Bank's assets because they get customer. It's very hard to get and keep a customer, particularly a well-heeled customer. And, you know, this will cause new loyalties and new fealty. And this is like, and what's more, they'll get a really good deal. Uh, And that's what happens in this kind of situation where there's a fire, fire sale. I mean, Andy Kessler 
uh, in the Wall Street Journal says, you know, if he had his, he would have, he would have bought it if he could have put a team together on Friday for three billion dollars just to, you know, because look, that's that's like a gimme. Something happened over the weekend, and those buyers didn't jump. And well, I think what they, what, the story that I I read yeah. is that there it's. It, the the time that the deal is supposed to happen was too fast for them to be able to vet the books. Well, that's the issue, you see, because I'm sorry. <clears throat> I, I apologize. People have been writing us in complaining that I'm clearing my throat too much. So I had a cold this week. So give me a break. Um, it That shouldn't have been an issue. In other words, like if they're going, whoa, 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 whoa we can't do this yet. I don't like, you know, that something doesn't smell right here. We need time to do a lot of due diligence, which of course, when you have a fire sale auction, the whole point of the fire sale auction is you're going to get a fantastic deal, but you have to jump on it and you have to assume a certain amount of risk. It's like if you buy sight unseen a, uh, you know, a house or real estate property at auction, uh, you may not even have time to visit it. The whole point is that it's so cheap that, you know, it's worth the downside risk. And if this isn't worth the downside risk to people, what's going to happen with Signature Bank, which they closed down? Right. Yes. Yeah, so what's going to happen to 10 or 15 other banks where there might be runs? Because that's the other thing about the bank run and the free to choose chapter describing this is. Bank runs are a, an act of, you know, irrational exuberance on the part of people who may not have anything to worry about, but are like, oh boy, everybody's taking money out of their banks. I better, I better go take it and, you know, put it under my mattress or whatever. And suddenly you have all this call to make good on your, on your deposits and you don't have the money to cover the spread. And then you also have to go do what everybody else is doing, which is sell off some of your assets. And if they're like Silicon Valley bank, they're they're Those assets are declining in value because you have all this money and very low asset, low, low yield bonds. And right now you can go to the treasury department and buy a higher yield bond. So that bond that produces 1.6% return uh, you couldn't sell for a percent. So suddenly all these banks are going to be at risk. And this is where I think this is the fear. The fear is that they just went, okay, we're going to make good on all the Silicon Valley uh, bank depositors because Bill Ackman put out a tweet, hedge fund and said, oh, you better do this. Or, you know, the entire economy is going to tank. So we need to calm people like Bill Ackman down and calm people who say the economy is going to go down. And then the question is, will saying we're going to make good on this then cause another? You think that the psychology is this is going to make people comfortable and tell them that they don't need to go and withdraw their money from a bank. But it could have exactly the opposite right. effect. I mean, nothing ever seems to work. I think that's the funny <laughs> lesson. Or maybe it's not so funny. It's kind of tragic. I mean, remember coming out of the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the federal government let Lehman Brothers collapse. Did that work? No, that that spiraled things out of control. So it may be a situation where now they're rushing to uh, display confidence uh, and a grasp of the situation, and that may actually cause people to panic further. It reminds me a little bit of like basically the one good argument Thomas Friedman has made in the last 15 years, which is, you know, with America and the Middle East, We've tried everything and, never, and nothing seems to work. We you know in Iraq, we did uh, preemptive war and regime change and we occupied the country and it caused huge blowback. And we're still um, talking about those lessons 20 years later. Then we get to Libya and Obama decides, oh, well, we're not going to use ground troops. We're just going to use the Air Force. And uh, well, that caused chaos, too, and all these other secondary effects. And then with Syria, Obama tried nothing. And that's been horrible <laughs> in some ways, in my view, even worse than the previous two. We could be in a similar situation with the economy where elites and experts in Washington say, oh, well, uh, we'll let Lehman fall or uh, well, that didn't work. So now we're going to do the TARP, which again was making everybody whole, keeping these zombie companies alive. You know, that prevented a, a depression. But we, of course, you can't prove the negative. We don't know what would have happened if we hadn't done anything. And now we have this new solution, which, which is being presented, which is, well, we're just going to guarantee the deposits of these banks, and that will restore confidence in the system. The big question of the next 24 hours is, does it do that? And that's why I think I'm living. I'm a little bit less concerned about the actual mechanics of this bailout than I am about the overall picture, which is that 
This, again, this is because of the Federal Reserve, but the Federal Reserve is trying to treat another big problem, and that's inflation. And so what you're seeing now is calls uh, from the financial community and even some from um, uh, from p- some politicians saying the Federal Reserve has got to stop fighting inflation, at least for a little bit now, um, because that's going to cause more panics and runs. Right. And there we might w- end up with the worst of both worlds. Where, where we're still getting in the the inflation, but we have we've raised uh, rates enough to cause kind of the rickety portions of our financial system to come undone. And, and me, we, sh- we we yeah. really shouldn't underestimate human behavior in this equation. It's really important to because right, I think when we start talking about systems and regulations, people forget the human element here and the signature bank closure was i think an example of that because so so barney frank sat on its board frank of you know dodd frank fame and he didn't see it coming but they were heavily invested in crypto and they had been having people withdraw stuff over the last you know month or so like they'd been having some sort of suspicious activity in terms of the health of that bank but when people saw what happened with silicon valley bank they immediately started pulling more out of there and that's what so that's why it shut down so again something that might have been kind of gradually able to to wind down instead became a rush on another bank and so the fed stepped in i want to go back to what i mentioned which is which was uh, uh bill ackman uh the pershing square uh, hedge funders uh tweet saying you have no idea how bad this could get we could have the, we, the in fact the entire world economy could collapse over this alone um and that goes to matt's point about the pressure on the fed which is to say so let's say that the uh, American banking system and a lot of the U.S. economy got addicted to, you know, they're addicts and they got addicted to low interest rates and, or to free money. And they they, they have to be broken <clears throat> clear of this addiction because uh, if they don't, then they're going to die of the addiction, which could be hyperinflation or whatever. So then you start, we, you start taking them off, you know, do methadone, you know, you can gradually increase the dose, whatever. And then comes the crisis. The crisis is that uh, either they start screaming and howling in pain and agony from withdrawal, or they have, or they, they, they start having seizures or something like that. And there is this moment, everybody who knows an addict may know this moment where it's like, just let them, you know, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to make this good later but we don't have the resources at the moment to deal with the the life the life threatening nature of the withdrawal symptom. So let them, you know, let them have a let them have a hit, and then we'll you know we'll make long term arrangements for care and you know withdrawal in a more controlled atmosphere. Um, and maybe that's necessary, uh, but that act is never going to be clear. Of, his addiction. And so you have the, this is the moment at which Silicon Valley and our, you know, high tech entrepreneurial economy that maybe isn't really as entrepreneurial as we thought, because there was no downside risk to borrowing the money that they were borrowing to build these companies. Um, Maybe they're now kicking and screaming with the withdrawal symptom and Washington is starting to Washington's initial impulse was to go we better we better we better uh, ameliorate that we better figure out some way to lessen the shock impact on the on the body here and maybe you'd have to and maybe you don't but if you but if you do it this way then no one is going to trust that you're serious as the addict would not trust that you were serious about saying you simply have to you know never you have to totally break free of your connection to this product and yeah it's not a good sign that the fed's like okay in this one just this once we're gonna met we're 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 gonna we're gonna step in and take an extraordinary measure for this bank's deposit only this bank it's like really so there is literally no excuse there will be no excuse if five or six other banks in the next three or four days start going under for the Fed to say, no, we we're only going to do that for Silicon Valley because, you know, I don't know why. Why would you only do it for Silicon Valley? Why are its depositors, its well, unsecured depositors, 
you're going to get made whole. And Pasquaxie Bank of Idaho isn't going to get its depositors made whole. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's exactly the political uh, dynamic at work here. It's very odd for uh, Democrats to be rushing to (laughs) uphold a financial institution that caters to, as Bernie Sanders would say, millionaires and billionaires. But that is Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley and California, of which it is a part, is the crux of today's Democratic Party coalition. So, you have deep connections between the Biden administration and uh, Silicon Valley and California. On the other side of the equation, you have the populist right, which, um, you know, uh, recently in the Washington Post, Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio has been arguing for a bailout for East Palestine. So the argument is going to be, but why are you why are you satisfying the depositors in the Silicon Valley Bank, Joe Biden, but you still haven't visited East Palestine, Ohio? And look, I think that can gain some traction. We have um, our, my favorite presidential candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, in the Wall Street Journal today, saying no bailouts for Silicon Valley Bank because it's a woke, it's a woke bank, right? And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, recently said the same thing. I will contrast those responses from another presidential candidate's, and that's Donald Trump's uh, truth post from last night, which I think has to be read in full. He says, with what is happening to our economy and with the proposals being made on the, and this is where he goes all caps, largest and dumbest tax increase in the history of the USA times five, Joe Biden will go down as the Herbert Hoover of the modern, spelled M-O-D-R-R-N, age. We will have the Great Depression, still all caps, far bigger and more powerful than that of 1929 as proof the banks are already starting to collapse. Now, notice what Trump did not say. He didn't say anything about the response to the Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> All he's doing is saying that this is part of Joe Biden's economy. And I think that's actually, and who, who knows whether it's purposeful, it's kind of a shrewder response in my view. He likes the chaos. The chaos than, helps him. Then yeah. Vivek's and DeSantis, which is to say, no, woke. nothing, no bailouts, woke, woke, woke. Trump is kind of all of a sudden taking the bigger lens here, the wider lens and saying, this is just the Biden economy. And I th- I fear that's that's actually going to turn out to be exactly right. I mean, it may not bit Great Depression, God help us, but the sense that the Biden economy has landed us in this strange situation of both economic stagnation in the sense that our standard of living is decreasing thanks to inflation and kind of bizarre patchwork government responses to financial institutions that creak and explode as a result of the very government's response to the inflation it created. You know, Abe, um, I'm sure that, you know, this is this is Donald Trump's favorite podcast and that he listens every day. So um, uh, I, I think Matt provided Trump or the Trumpians or whoever with, with, we haven't even connected this to what Matt said before, which is who are the depositors in the Silicon Valley Bank? With the exception of Peter Thiel, who was the originator of this bank run said, get your money out of there. This is not looking good. Um, My guess is that 90% of the depositors in Silicon Valley, to the extent that they are donors to political causes, donate to the democratic party and green causes and things like that. And you could therefore get a Republican response that says, yeah, yeah, yeah. They immediately jumped on this because they're protecting their own plutocrats who are, you know, and got, who knows what these people are doing. And then you could get into all the stuff that you can play that is going to start coming up. These are the people who are doing AI. These are the people who are pro- producing the new economy that is going to throw working class people out of their jobs at a, at a rate that we haven't even seen yet. And that's what they're hyper responsive to their own people. Yeah. And then, Biden won't even go visit the 4,000 people of East Palestine who, you know, got poisoned by the controlled demolition of the train. Uh, That is good. That is politically good because it's going to be hard for financial journalists and political journalists to say, Oh, come on. That's just absolutely ridiculous. Cause you know, it's not ridiculous. Why did this happen by Sunday night? 
can you imagine the kind of phone traffic that was going into the Fed and Treasury and to Janet Yellen and to this one and to that one and to every, you know, who's calling to say, I have $300 million in deposits there. What's going to happen to me? Mike, you know, I'm 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 going to have to I'm going to have to lay off 5,000 people cuz I'm not going to be able to pay them in a week and a half. Okay, in just this once we're going to make good for you. That's like gold, Abe. Well, well yeah, but political you know, gold, not that's bad, but yeah. no, no, of course, but it, and it and it also that gets back to my point that it gives you a simple framing of a uh, convoluted and bedeviling uh, phenomenon. Um, you could you could just say, "Oh, this is the 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 the, the failure of a constituency group or a, of a or of a financially backing uh, a group of 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 the Democrats and they're and they're saving it." But the thing is, if the collapse spreads, um, then what? Then then you either, they either the the populists either have a an enhanced talking point or or none, depending on how what the government response is there, because if, if they if they have to start bailing out everyone, um, then it's no longer about uh, just playing favorites. Right. Right. Well, but that right. So the point then would be they started a bailout system. And then there was no way to limit the bailout. On matters of simple fairness, like yeah, you're only pulling out Silicon Valley. What are you kidding me? Right? Are you people crazy? Like you can't do that. I mean, so so I don't know. It's there. There's this is very arcane on the one hand, and yet the politics of it, I think, are very simple. It will be very hard for Democrats to comp- to to make the case that what's happening here is that. Trumpy plutocrats are being bailed out by their, you know, wildly unequal system because of all the banks in America, this is a bank that is not full of Trumpy plutocrats. So I don't know. I just think I just think the politics you, of this are very. You could also argue. I mean, I'm sorry, but if you're bail, if the if if the elites who run institutions like the Fed are only going to bail out fellow elites in Silicon Valley who make risky investments, that will increase inequality. So it is. It, I mean, the irony of hearing like, "Where's Elizabeth Warren? Where's Bernie Sanders?" Denouncing this. This is exactly the kind of thing that if you care about. Increasing rates of inequality in this country, which do breed political instability. That is, you know, income inequality is not a great, uh, not a great thing in terms of like, you know, fueling populist revolts and whatnot. But I don't, they don't really have a lane here, right? Like they've always taken this, this more, they make a moral argument about inequality. But when it comes to this sort of behavior, there's really no room for them to make that. Well, I do think though, um, you know, I have seen that Bernie Sanders uh, is very critical of the government's response to this. And I wonder in the context, and we don't need to get distracted by some of the issues I'll mention, but in the context of Biden's recent moves, right? I mean, reversing the D.C. City Council crime bill, um, there's this uh, decision he's going to make that uh, to authorize a huge um, oil exploration and drilling pro- uh, project. Um, in Alaska. Uh, now this, with the government working with the Federal Reserve to shore up an institution like Silicon Valley Bank, you do have the beginnings of an arg- of an argument from the left populists against a Biden renomination, re-election campaign. And it is something to watch. I mean, we're not yeah. there yet, but more and more of these things are starting to build. I'll just say, I mean, the last financial crisis, 2008, happened under a Republican president, right? And the Republicans paid for it. And so Biden has to um, worry about the state of the economy. The message from him, uh, when we just saw it on Friday with the jobs numbers that came out above expectations is things are great. Things are great. We have this problem with inflation, but we're taking care of it. It's going to come down. I passed the Inflation Reduction Act. It's going to get rid of it. But one, inflation isn't subsiding. Um, it's still there. And two, you see these kind of um, 
liver spots on the body of the economy in the form of SVB. And you begin to wonder, what kind of economy are we going to have if Biden uh, is the Democratic nominee? In 2024, I'll give you another. I'll give you another example of why this 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 could be bad, not just for Biden with progressives, but Biden in general. Which is that when the financial system began to sort of <clears throat> bend and break uh, from 2007 through the spring and even the summer of 2008, um, the Republican response or the conservative response was. What will happen will happen. You know, this is, you know, people made bad investments. They're going to get wiped out. Lehman should be, Lehman. Um, you know, you should let Lehman fail. Uh, you know, this is what happens. The, the, you know, it'll, it'll unwind itself. The system will hold. And then the system couldn't hold. And so Republicans were forced into kind of what you might consider heterodox moves including a massive government direct government invention into the financial system into the economy pumping liquidity into the economy that was a kind of betrayal of a lot of a lot of classic thinking on the right government going and bailing out a bank and doing that kind of thing and sort of starting to get control of the financial system through these uh, efforts and modalities that is textbook democratic policy dating back to the new deal they they want to have their fingers in the financial system and so it's going to be very easy to tag them with responsibility for any instability that follows unless this turns out to be a wild success they announced it sunday night they sell the they sell silicon valley bank you know before three o'clock today uh, signature bank sort of is made whole and whatever the panic was subsides. That could also happen. We should mention that now and say that in a year we'll forget that this ever happened and we'll sort of dimly remember that we even had this podcast and I won't remember what I said. So that that could also be the case. But if it's not and things do cascade, it fits with a general narrative about Democrats, their donors, their people, and, you know, how uh, anytime anything happens, whether you have no money or whether you have $5 billion, you just look right to the government to make you whole. And who's the government? The government is the people of East Palestine, Ohio, who are getting no help. Yeah, I think the real question is, is this, um, you know, the stock market crash of 1987 and the long term capital management crisis of 1998, which in retrospect were kind of blips, uh, or is it? the uh you know the uh, fanny and freddie uh, uh in 2008 uh kind of the beginning of this unwinding we just don't know at this point biden is speaking as we're recording this podcast and the real question uh for me in the coming day will be how do the markets respond um uh, futures were not looking good <laughs> before the markets open and we'll see what happens uh afterward all right, so let's let's uh, let let's go now from the uh, you know from this uh, uh, worldwide impact question here uh, to something uh, lighter. Uh, Oscars last night um, and uh, this uh, dominating performance at the Oscars by the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, which won uh, seven, is the first movie in ninety five years to win all but one of the what are called above the line Oscars. That's best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, and best supporting actress and screenplay. And it's like a, a huge victory for this movie. And I think the most salient thing about the night is not that, that it won though. We can just discuss why it won, but um, that the Oscars went off kind of without a hitch. They were pretty fun. It was a very polished show uh, there were no political, there was almost no politics. There was a lot of talk about your mother and my mother up in heaven looking down on me, mom, we did it. And this is the American dream and this and stuff like that. Very positive, very upbeat, uh, no, very little culture war and, uh, and, a, and, and a, a complete contrast with the horrors of the Oscar shows of the last five years. Uh, in that there was sort of not one moment at which you went, oh, my God, here they go, or they're screwing up again or whatever. Abe, 
you're a you're a big Oscar watcher. You, <laughs> I, well, I was a big Oscar watcher last night. Yeah. Um, to start, uh, I think Jimmy Kimmel did a very good job. I don't like him uh, generally, but uh, he sort of he struck the right tone. Everything was funny enough, um, and uh, he didn't establish um, anything being terribly political uh, from the start, which was good. Um, I think part of what kept uh, sort of complaints about the country uh, to a bare minimum, if any, um, is that uh, a Democrat is in the White House. Um, I think we, we you, you see it entirely different Oscars when that's not the case. Um, there was a lot of sort of American dream referencing, which which I, I was heartened by because um, I think it wasn't that long ago when we were being told that the the idea itself was offensive and um, unsafe uh, to pe- to people. Um, and there was also this sense of no one, everyone was thrilled by the Oscars, by the institution to have it, to, 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 to win one. There was no sort of looking down. No one was above it. No one was too good for it. No one sort of treated it as garbage. Um, it was like this kind of throwback appreciation um, of of the event itself by the participants. Everyone was crying. Everyone was emoting. Everyone was, you know, looking up and thanking their their deceased parents. Uh, uh, which which you know, that's a very different tone than 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 what we'd seen and, before. Can, and can we just point out a Goonie finally won an Oscar? Like this is really the moment that should be celebrated. Short round. I mean, this, the, these actors yeah. actually who have been with us. You would have thought of, it would be Josh Brolin. I know. Josh no, Brolin no, would have would have won, but no, it's short himself. round. But short also, round like took it. even like I was not a fan of of, of Everywhere Altogether all the way. I, but I was not well, a huge fan of the well, movie. We need but to I concentrate have, on that though. But I we need but to concentrate I, on yes. that in a second. Please. But I do. I have been a Michelle Yeoh fangirl for decades and this woman has been making like these amazing uh, physically challenging martial arts movies since she was like in her 20s in hong kong like she's incredible and she's 60 years old and she just has every every time she's on screen you cannot look away she's extraordinary yeah. i love that she won i love that she basically called out don lemon again it was like never let anyone tell you your pastor prime ladies i mean that for me was like the heartwarming moment yeah. um as well as as yeah. you know the wind okay, for my goonie michelle yo is amazing she- I love her. That movie is so bad. It's like terrible. It yeah. It's unwatchable. I was not surprised when I woke up this morning to find that it won the best picture. I could not get through 25 minutes of it. I didn't watch it in the theater, but all of my, you know, I'm not going to name any names of other podcasters, but there's a very close friend of mine uh, who uh, has some several, like five podcasts now or whatever. And he has been singing the praises of this movie for months. I put it on. It was terrible. And I was so, I didn't understand what was going on. It was so frenetic. It was giving me a headache. Um, and I was so excited about this Oscars, as I was telling you all earlier, because I had actually seen a lot of the nominees. And so uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, I thought was amazing. The Fableman's Great Spielberg, uh, Avatar, what a spectacle. And then there's Top Gun Maverick, which is the most pro-American movie I've seen in years. It's got the amazing performance by Tom Cruise. It's the perfect movie. It's my son's favorite movie. No, no. Everything, everywhere, all at once, just to hit you over the head again and again and again and leave you with the headache. And that's what was rewarded with best picture. So you have an Oscars hangover. <laughs> okay. I have a, I, I have a terrible Oscars, but you know what? I faced a choice last night. I said, okay, well, we're going to talk about the show, the Oscar show on the podcast. So maybe I should spend the evening prior catching up on the two of the best picture nominees I haven't seen, which, and my choice was the Banshees of Inishirin or Tar. And you know what? Uh, I said to heck with that plan. I ended up watching the new Mel Brooks series on Hulu and I enjoyed myself. I enjoyed oh, there's myself. Good stuff on that yeah. show. Uh, History of the World Part Two, the Shirley, the sitcom featuring Shirley Chisholm, the 1972 <laughs> yeah. I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, is fantastic. And uh, there's a lot of funny stuff on there. Um, okay. So I, I didn't like every, I have a, you can Google my name and everything ever will. You'll find my review. I, I found it a, crashing bore uh the movie though i thought that i i came out of that movie seeing it in the theater last march and i said to my wife 
Michelle Yeoh is going to win an Oscar. So I, 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 the first of all, it's an astounding performance. She it's basically people haven't really given her credit for this. She plays ten different parts. She plays herself in all these different universes, and she's a she's a bedraggled owner of a laundry. She's an international movie star. She's a secret agent. She's this. She's that. She's the other thing. You know, she's physical. She's the spiritual. Uh, it's just a, a breathtaking performance. As is Kehui Kwan, the Goonie, who who won. Um, and did say, look, you know, my journey started on a boat and I was in a refugee camp for a year. And here I am on the biggest stage in the world. This is the American dream. That was this, this, this great moment. I didn't like everything all everywhere all at once. I was disgusted by a lot of it. There's a major plot point in it that I don't think Matt even got to where <laughs> in order to trigger your entry into the multiverse, <clears throat> you basically have to be anally violated. Um, oh my God. And that that one thing alone um, just, you know, disturbed me beyond belief. But my 18-year-old daughter adores this movie, adored it. And it is, it ends up, what's interesting about it is that it's got this, you know, gloss superhero multiverse gloss. But it's basically a story about a struggling family uh, with an unloving you know, elderly grandfather and an unloving mother and a bad marriage and a depressed daughter. And they find their way to reconciliation at the end. It's actually a sentimental family movie gussied up in this, in this unbelievably hyperactive way without the sentimental family part, this movie would not be the movie that it is. And it wouldn't be why it won this unbelievably commanding victory because um you know butt plugs aside uh the movie has a very classic almost victorian sentimental frame to it even though the daughter is a lesbian and the grand you know it's, it's stuff like that it's still a let's just have one last christmas together as a family kind of plot line and i think that's sort of the this, it's a family movie. It's a movie about family. And the entire night, all anybody was doing was talking about their families, their mothers, their wives, their children. Their, 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 their. And it was kind of striking in that fashion because, yeah, nobody made a political speech. But you know what? The speeches, by the way, I, I share uh, John's and Matt's assessment of the movie. I, I, I couldn't stand it. It was a constant assault on the senses. It made zero sense. And and uh, I'm a sucker for like multiverse type sci-fi uh um premises and movies and i and i i couldn't make heads or tails of it um no political speeches but the speeches from that writer director team of it yeah um i thought were the daniels yeah yeah were um a little long and full of themselves and i thought to myself oh these two are going to be in in our lives for 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 the rest of the foreseeable future I don't think they are, by the okay, way, good. because here's here's what I, I think this is a fluke. This movie is a fluke, um, and they worked on it for 12 years, and it happened to be perfectly timed and all of that. Uh, they made a movie before this called Swiss Army Man, which is about a a a a, fart, a, a person who escapes from a desert from a desert island. Uh, riding on the back of a of a corpse that that manages to. Uh, move through the water by farting uh and then this movie has this stuff and so i don't know where these guys go from here you know because this... they they were they were basically gonzo to a proctologist job they That's were gonzo they <laughs> sort of like you know i hate oscar bait stuff you know i'm gonna make cool crazy things and now they've been sort of garlanded in this way it's kind of like winning a MacArthur Genius Grant. Like I don't know what where they're going to go with this now that they've become the establishment. Their whole their whole affect is <laughs> to you know to epater le bourgeois. I know where they're headed. Okay, yeah. The Marvel Cinematic Universe. They, Just you they watch. Are, they they're going to be directing Marvel. one of the movies, one of the forty-two Marvel movies that come out in the twenty twenty-six. And then I won't see there is I, I just want to pick up one thing you said, John, which I do think there is a generation divide in perceptions of this film. 
I've picked up that up from others as well. Younger uh, younger audiences seem to take to it much more than um, the middle aged, such as myself, and older. And I I hope I hope that you know this was my big shot, right? Because this was James Cameron. Tom Cruise, Steven Spielberg, right? The cinema that I grew up in and that I love, they had their opportunity and the Oscars basically gave them the bird. And I I hope I have. So that's my fear, Christine. I fear (laughs) this is done. We're over. It's going to move on to the demo, right? We're out. We've aged out. First of all, I thought the Fablemans was terrible. So I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not going with that. But I do think that it's interesting that, um, this is not my point is this is not a feel bad movie right, right in the end it's a feel good movie it's an action adventure science fiction you know assault on the senses thing that ends with a mother and a daughter kind of hugging each other like it's a feel good movie last year's winter coda was a feel good movie um and clearly the oscar the, i would say that the industry is trying to send a message to the extent that the oscars are an industry message that it wants to provide uplift to its audiences and wants to downplay the lecturing and the hectoring and the you know moral preening to the extent that it knows how to do that and I, it doesn't matter to me because this stuff is all nonsense and nobody cares and I really don't care. Like last night, I, I know everything there is to know about the Oscars. There was a point at which I could have almost recited Oscar winners to you in sequence over 75 years. And last night, an actor named Riz Ahmed got up to give the documentary award and somebody at the party that I was at said, oh, you know, he won the Best Actor Oscar three years ago for The Sound of Metal. And I was like, he did? <laughs> Is that real? That was, of course, the, that was, of course, the first pandemic Oscar year. But um, what? He, Riz Ahmed, won an, the guy who was in the in the cab driver TV show on HBO. I barely even remembered that. So I'm like, I'm now almost out of this and can't, can't remember anything, but I do note it note that, um, that they're going, they're going for the positive. Well, that's good. It's, it's, I would say it's neither, it's neither good nor bad. Abe, you loved tar, which I've only watched half an hour of, and I really didn't like, I'm going to watch the rest of it, but can you, can you can you give me two minutes? Because Tar was totally blank. Like everybody thought, you know, that it was at least Kate Blanchett was going to win, and she didn't. And that's why that's why I can't see Tar. By the way, because I have an allergy to Kate Blanchett, like huge. I can't stand her. I've never been able to stand her. And like watching her for three hours have a nervous breakdown is like too much for me. Well, on on her particular performance in it, I I, I will give you this. There's something false about it, but I find her extremely compelling to watch, even uh-huh. even while she's sort of being false to me. Um, the movie itself, I thought, was sort of unlike um, anything else. It was uh, had a whole lot to do with the cultural shift right now in everything from sort of me too and wokeness and 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 how uh people in power uh are both sort of uh victimizers and sort of prisoners of uh victimizers of 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 what's going of of uh those who whose whose lives they sort of hold in their hand and are sort of have been captured and prisoners in this larger system. And she's, she's, she plays an unlikely um, uh, example of uh, sort of uh, cultural figure with power here. And, and she faces um, very interesting set of, of challenges. There's a kind of a a spoiler that I did that I could talk about here, but I won't um, which, which also makes it very interesting. Um, I've just never quite seen a movie that, 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 sort of confronts this stuff um as squarely as as this does as this and it's grueling as it gets you there um it's very beautiful uh to watch um jimmy kimmel made a joke about how it you know it it, it opens with the 15 minute 
uh, interview with with with, Adam with, Gopnik, with, yeah. with the actual Adam Adam Gop Adam Gopnik, and I and I thought you know watching that I was like what what the what the hell is this? But it was that was different enough that it 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 got me. Um, that's when my allergic reaction kicked in when I heard the when I heard that Adam Gopnik plays. Himself but you know, in the movie. like a lot I of it, I can no way. But but a lot of it sort of it's a movie that makes sense as it more sense as it goes on. It sort of teaches you how to watch it in a way. Right. Um, so like the might, might have been the opening question that um, uh, that Gopnik asks asks her uh, uh, the Tar character in this interview is. Um, what did you, what's the sort of one thing you learned from Leonard Bernstein? Um, and then if you sort of watch uh, through the whole movie, um, well, there, there are multiple answers, but you sort of see perhaps what the one thing right. is that she, that she uh, learned. Also, ironically, that that role, the Gop, what the Gopnik has now taken on in this movie used to be played in every movie by by Charlie Rose, right? Yeah, so who exactly ironically right. was yeah. someone who in during the course of the Hilarious. Me Too movement was exposed to have been. Yeah. You know, a little bit predatorial. In See, my behavior. experience with that opening was, and this is a very particular problem for for me, uh, and I say this for me because it doesn't really matter for anybody else, but I had this with the once uh, wildly celebrated My Dinner with Andre, which is that My Dinner with Andre was viewed by many people as this amazing experience and listening to two extremely erudite people have a conversation about life and culture and all of that. And uh, it struck me, A, that they weren't erudite, that they were basically just blowers of hot air and just pretentious. And nobody ever actually had a conversation like that ever and no intellectual talk like this. And my experience watching Tar at the beginning was that it was like, I know people like this. I know people like Tar. I've grown up, I grew up around people like Tar. And she's not like any person who actually exists this is not the way that purveyors of high culture who are conductors and ethnographers who go to the amazon or whatever the hell she does they don't talk like that they don't speak without contractions and they don't and they aren't sort of like sniffy and stiff backed and all of that they're very they're very much like profane and jokey and uh, wildly self-confident and often and stuff like that. And that but, she just seemed like a big tight ass. She was okay. In, okay. in, in, in defense of the movie. If you watch more, you realize she's, she's got a lot to prove for, for various okay. reasons. Okay. So, See, she, I so she's not necessarily like, so I had a problem. Like if I'd been at a movie theater, have I been able to see it in a movie theater? I would have been, you know, forced to sit there and watch it. And it would have rolled over me the way that it did. And a lot of people like it. Well, I just, whenever they make movies about famous cultural figures or big time figures in culture, I, I just, they're, they're little touches of falsity and they just, it's like when you know something about a world and then they, you know, it's like when somebody says stop the presses in a, in a movie about newspapers, I'm like, okay, I'm out. No one has ever said stop the presses ever. It doesn't happen. It maybe it happened in 1927, but it hasn't happened in my lifetime. I worked in many newsrooms and it's not real. And so that just instantly takes me out of it and I lose it. There's a Sood's view of intellectual life that kind of certain audiences find very appealing. And I think yeah. that's, I haven't seen tar, but I have seen my dinner with Andre and um, there's that. De that's definitely at work there. It's also at work in um, Barack Obama's annual book selection picks. He's well, he definitely, is the ultimate he, suit, Right. He sure. and Adam Gopnik could have, yeah. they could talk for hours. Yeah. That would the be the best thing. About and Adam it would win Gopnik. an Oscar. Yeah. Can I just say one thing about it? And then we'll, then we'll end. So Adam Gopnik, when, Jimmy Kimmel made the joke about Adam about Adam Gopnik. The camera cut to Adam Gopnik, at, who was in the who was in the audience, and he was scowling. <laughs> the guy had become the subject of a joke on the Oscars. What you do if you are a person of any like cultural bearing is laugh when somebody makes a joke sort of at your expense but it's also flattering because you're mentioned and he was like how dare you <laughs> i'm adam gopnik you know i i i have written articles that, that on many be the different sequel. subjects of cultural import 
That's you the, are just Jimmy Kimmel. That would be the sequel to Tar. Gopnik. <laughs> yeah, Adam. Adam. Yeah, with a with, an <laughs> with accent that accent. <laughs> anyway, I hope you've uh, enjoyed this little foray into uh, into into cultural. You know, like and when I was your age, I would we like gun. <laughs> hey. It's true, Matt. You're too young to say you're too old to see everything everywhere all at once. Uh, young fogeyism, John. There you go. Okay, so we'll be back tomorrow uh, for uh, Abe, Christine, and Matt. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.